0: Before we start the show this week, just a reminder that the College of Emergency Nursing Australasia has a special bonus offer to current and new members, where you can get part of your membership for free. Simply join CENA as a referral from an existing member before the end of August, and you'll both receive one month of membership for free. Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Just introduce
1: yourself and tell us about your background. I'm Simon Craig. I'm a paediatric emergency physician working at Monash.
0: I was really quite overwhelmed by the diversity and and broad reach that your clinical and research interests take. Um, Obviously, you do seem to have a particular focus on paediatric asthma. Um, I wonder if you could tell us about how you manage all of that, and why you came to asthma, um, and where do you think you're going with that?
1: Uh, Research sort of is a a, it's a funny way of getting started into things, and then you sort of end up going down different paths depending on what is interesting or what's available. Um, So, starting out in research, I did whatever was interesting to me. Um, as an emergency trainer, you have to do a research project and the first proper project I did, I was working down at Warrigal as a rural, uh, it's about 100 k's out of Melbourne. Uh, it's a small emergency department. And at the time, there were no registrars and no consultants and I was a junior registrar. This was in 2003. Um, And after working there for a few weeks, you realize you make a lot of phone calls to get people transferred out. It'd be interesting to see how many phone calls we make and how often we do that. So we recorded that for six months and looked at how many times we had to pick up the phone to get a patient transferred. I think the most number of phone calls for one patient was 18 phone calls to get a, a patient out that needed a pacemaker. But measuring that and doing that was sort of an introduction to how you can do research and either identify a problem or, you know, highlight a potential for improvement. And one of the things that I've done with research is try to find something that either annoys me or interests me enough to want to pursue it. Because, you know, when people look at research, you start with Oh, what's the research question, and then how do I find out? And then a lot of people then get discouraged by the oh, I've got to write a protocol, or I've got to submit something to ethics, and I've never done this before, or oh, I've got to go through all these forms. And but if you're doing something that you're curious about, or or you see is important enough to um, annoy you, <laughs> and and you want to get you want to fix it, you want yeah. to get involved, then that sort of helps you through the the less exciting bits of it. Do,
0: do you see any anywhere um, where it would be a quick fix to reduce some of those barriers? So some of those um, proposals, obviously not the ethics committee, we could talk about that as well, but do you see anywhere where it would be quite easy to fix that and make it a bit more um, um, accessible?
1: Um. I think the more you do it, the more accessible it is. The first time you do it, it's always a bit scary. Um, One of the things that as emergency trainees and paediatric trainees have to do is they have to expose themselves to research in some way during their training. And that's called... It's a research project. Uh, I think it had a number. It used to be called the 410 project in um, emergency training, which was Regulation 410. It's no longer called that. Uh, But what – and the College of Emergency Medicine has, in the last few years, realised that not everyone does want to do a research project and so they've got an option where trainees can – Instead of doing a research project, pick up two postgraduate uni subjects around research methods or biostatistics or epidemiology, but our paediatric trainees who are going through a different college don't have that option, so they all need to do research projects. So, one of the my roles in the paeds emergency department is to often supervise a lot of those projects, but again, the conversation goes, well, what are you interested in? What can you be... Um, what will continue to hold your attention a few months down the track, what's important to you and what are you interested in when you're finishing your training. So if someone wants to be an endocrinology doctor, then a project about diabetes is probably more important than a project on wrist fractures, for example. Uh, so finding something that interests people is the most important. But in terms of the barriers to research, I think the biggest barrier is just not knowing where to start and, um, Finding Having someone who's accessible is really important, but also having access to a protocol that someone else has written. So often, you know, if I'm supervising someone, then I'll provide them with um, a previous protocol, similar style of project, but not similar content, obviously, and that just gives you an idea of how to structure it and frame it um, in recent years uh, there's uh, mm. there's a website which essentially has reporting guidelines for mm. all sorts of um, different types of research and, and things that you have to do in order to prepare a good protocol and, yeah. and, and a good structure.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there's quite a few of those around. Um, you, you're a uh, an, uh, an adjunct associate professor at Monash University as well, and Monash have quite a few different tools and, and sort of walkthroughs and things like that to help people when they're first writing a research proposal or indeed, you know, getting their ethics done, which, you know, is they're two, two parts of the, the same process. I interrupted you when you were talking about your first um, research project where uh, you were looking at the amount of phone calls you made. Did did you have somebody who helped you or mentored you or guided you through that process?
1: Um, yes and no. Uh, down, it was a, a small hospital and there wasn't much in the way of infrastructure or research support down there. Um, I had Worked for a year at Monash Medical Center prior to going down there and had a few conversations with Graham Thompson, who's now over at the Anglis. But um, I think as you go through your clinical life or your research life, there are always people that influence you or provide, you know, a a role model or someone that you you can uh, get influenced by or, you know. Hmm.
0: So – You have uh, published quite a bit um, and it appears to me that you've got a particular interest in asthma, bronchiolitis,
1: um, airways, impedes in emergency or...? I think, again, the nice thing about emergency medicine is that you see a bit of everything. And so, you know, if you turn up to a particular shift, you might be faced with uh, trauma, you might be faced with adolescent mental health, you might be faced with asthma and respiratory problems and fever and everything. Um, there are probably two aspects to this. One, in terms of acute respiratory illness, and we'll take bronchiolitis first, mm. there's been a few changes in the way we do things over the last uh, five to ten years, and most prominent there is uh, the use of high flow in infants with bronchiolitis and we at Monash were one of the sites that were involved in a large uh, multi-center study trying to compare the effectiveness of bronchiolitis for hypoxic infants, uh, uh, sorry, high flow for bronchiolitis uh, in children who are hypoxic and uh, normal low flow oxygen. Um, That has generated a few papers And we've then gone on to repeat the study in older kids. Uh, I don't have the results of that. That's still sort of under analysis, but we've finished data collection there. But through our involvement in these studies and other studies before then, Monash has been part of the the whole PREDICT network, which is doing a lot of multi-centre work. Well,
0: if it's okay, we will come to PREDICT in a moment. And PREDICT was the the backing behind uh, making it possible to do multi-centre studies uh, um, and getting collaboration across different sites. Um, I was listening to Ed Oakley the other day um, talking about uh, the high-flow oxygen study and some of the outcomes. I wonder if you'd be uh, comfortable or are are you comfortable to tell the listeners about what we found because this is such an important thing for nurses. What do we do? What do we use?
1: I think the... In brief, the study found that there was a reduction in the primary outcome of escalation in therapy and treatment failure for children with bronchiolitis, but it's more complicated than that. Uh, Briefly, what the study was, was we randomized a bunch of kids who had to be hypoxic with bronchiolitis to either starting on low-flow oxygen and then escalating to high flow oxygen if they met certain criteria, or starting them initially on high flow oxygen. So, we've got a a low flow arm, which can escalate to high flow. We've got a high flow arm, and if that needs escalation, they often get escalated to intensive care, or they get escalated to intubation or CPAP or something else. So, the reason of the definition of escalation or treatment failure was around uh, changes in vital signs and whether someone did something about it. So, increased respiratory rate, increased heart rate, or respiratory rate and heart rate staying the same, and someone deciding that they needed more treatment. So, if you're on low flow and you, had, and you were tachypneic and you stayed tachypneic, but no one did anything, you didn't fail the treatment. But if you're on low flow and stayed tachypneic and someone decided to change you to high flow, then you were counted as a treatment failure. So the couple of problems I suppose with the study is taking someone from low flow and putting them on high flow in the ward is pretty easy. Taking someone from high flow and escalating them and putting them in ICU, there's a few more barriers you've got to cross. And essentially, the finding of the primary outcome was that there's no difference. Sorry, that there was a difference in um, children who were started on high flow. We were less likely to do more stuff to them compared to people in low flow. However, then you look at all the other outcomes. So we looked at hospital length of stay. We looked at intubation rates. We looked at everything else, and there was no difference in any outcome. Mm. So subsequent to the the headline paper, there's been um, an economic analysis published and a couple of other things, and an economic analysis helps you identify whether it's value for money or whether it's worth it, and essentially, there wasn't any difference between the two. So it's
0: not more expensive to put somebody on high flow? Uh,
1: It is a bit more expensive in the consumables, um, but- You know, it's like eight dollars versus a couple of dollars, and everything else is about the same. But it certainly doesn't save any money. It's not value for money, and you know, it's potentially more expensive and potentially using things. So it's very low chance that it makes a big difference to people.
0: Um, I was listening to somebody talk about their approach to uh, a kitty with um, bronchiolitis, and their their initial approach is to watch and wait rather than get all aggressive with the management in terms of high flow as well. Um, What do you think of that?
1: Well, I think bronchiolitis, there's only two interventions that we can really provide that make any difference. There's lots of evidence that most of what we do does nothing for the patient. So we've got an option in terms of feeding support. If a kid can feed, they can either feed or if they're not feeding, they can either get nasogastric or IV fluids. Yeah. That's one thing, and the other thing is respiratory support. Now we know that respiratory support doesn't shorten the illness, yeah. and we know that respiratory support doesn't change much of the way of outcomes unless they're really struggling. So my approach is to treat hypoxia with oxygen yeah. and accept that there is work of breathing. Yeah. So work of breathing, there's no magic cure no. for work of breathing and the work of breathing will persist until the, the lung inflammation from bronchiolitis goes away. So the first bit for work of breathing is to give them oxygen if they're hypoxic. If they're not hypoxic, they don't need oxygen. And if their work of breathing is such that they're going to get tired, they'll probably get hypoxic at some point before then. So you you're unlikely to go from normal breathing to... Hypoxic and arrested exactly. without getting hypoxic in the meantime. So, my approach would be if a child's tachypneic with normal oxygen and normal feeding, they probably go home. Yep. If they're tachypneic but need oxygen or need support with feeding, they probably can't go home and need to come into hospital. And then if you are on low flow, which is what most of these kids need, you wait. Some kids will stay tachypneic and needing a bit of feeding support but won't get particularly worse and you'll just sit there for a few days and then get better. Those that deteriorate despite low flow, yeah, put them on high flow, but it is not correct, in my, in my view, to put a child who's not hypoxic on high flow just because they've got work of breathing. Work of breathing is part of the disease, yeah. and it's not actually going to modify that. It makes you feel like you're doing something. Exactly. It and gives you that feeling that you're helping the child, but you're really just reassuring yourself.
0: And and, and quite often, uh, that's the some of the, the, the things that drive the way we do things, I, I think. Um, sometimes we feel like we need to be doing something. What has been your um your experience of of nurses implementing a moral
1: watch and wait and observe I think the setting is important yeah. and the comfort of nursing staff with a sick child is important and the hospital environment is important as well if you've got uh And it's probably easier where I work. You know, we work in a tertiary Mm paediatric hospital. We've got lots of experienced nurses. And there's also the opportunity to provide education. And we were one of the studies sites that did the the Paris study. And everyone's quite comfortable with high flow. But as the results came out, you're able to talk to the nursing groups and talk to the nursing staff and say, well, this is what we found. And yes, the the primary outcome is a little bit better, but nothing else changed. Um, So I think... If you're in a place that doesn't see a lot of kids or doesn't have, um, you know, and the other thing here at Monash, we've got, uh, you know, an ICU backup when you don't have that everywhere. So people's thresholds for initiating or escalating treatment may differ in, in a smaller place, but there's pretty good evidence that if you start on low flow, you're going to be fine most of the time. Yeah. And those that go from low flow don't go from low flow to intubation very rapidly, yeah. there's going to be a period of stabilisation. You can use uh, high flow in the meantime. The only caveat to that is in the very little babies who are having apneas, they're completely different. Yeah. You've just got to be a bit more careful with those. Yeah, exactly.
0: Great. So you have um, – I interrupted you earlier, but you have started or you're halfway through or you're nearly finished a PhD around <laughs> asthma.
1: Ah, oh, So <laughs> getting back to asthma, I mean we were talking earlier about – respiratory illness. Asthma is obviously another big uh, area of um, work for paediatric emergency and we see lots of wheezy kids, less this year with coronavirus, but um, it's still around. Um, The the interest in asthma comes from two places. One, I got told at some point that you need to do a PhD (laughs) and that's what my PhD has turned out to be. But the second bit was... With all the work we've done in predict, we've spoke. We've done work on bronchiolitis. We've done another RCT on uh, uh, status epilepticus. There's been various other trials going on around oxygen, and there's a bit of a gap in asthma because we don't really know what we're doing. Um, Mild asthma and moderate asthma is pretty straightforward. Steroids and bronchodilators will make most children better. Where it gets a little interesting and reasonably controversial is what do you do with a kid who's not responding to first-line treatment and needs escalation of therapy? So whether that's magnesium or aminophilin or salbutamol or ketamine or heliox or non-invasive ventilation, um, no one really knows what to do. And we thought, oh, it'd be really good to do a trial and predict uh, around asthma. And so we got a little bit excited and started planning things. And then as you get into it, you start reviewing all the other literature and you realize that every study that's been done on asthma uh, has measured different things. So you can measure peak flow, you can measure uh, respiratory rate, there's various clinical scores around asthma that you can measure. You can measure hospital length of stay, you can measure whether someone got intubated, But each study that's been done on, say, magnesium, intravenous or IV salbutamol has used different outcome measures. And so, then it becomes a question of, okay, if we do a study on asthma, which outcome measures are we going to use? And the more we got into it, the more it became apparent that whatever we do, the people in America might do something different, the people in Canada might do something different. So, uh, the people in the UK might do something different. So, what we've decided was, and which is the basis of my PhD, which is to try and get everyone in the world to agree to do asthma studies the same way. Which sounds a little ambitious, but might just work. Yeah. So, have
0: you experienced um, people willing to to go along with this type of idea? Which is which makes perfect sense um, in hindsight, doesn't
1: it? So, th- th- there's two angles to this. There. Um, There is a push among people that do clinical trials to develop what are called core outcome sets. So this is a series of outcomes that you need to measure in every single clinical trial you do. And that initially came out of rheumatologists. If you've got someone with rheumatoid arthritis, not many people die from rheumatoid arthritis, but a lot of them have symptoms that could be quite debilitating. So what they did, they got a bunch of rheumatologists and a bunch of patients together and went through a process and came up with a list of things that need to be measured in every study of drugs to treat rheumatoid arthritis, and they developed core outcomes for that. That's now extended to lots of other areas, but there's not really one for acute severe asthma in kids. Um, so there is a gap there. The other thing, there is an opportunity. So we, we touched on the PREDICT network, which is essentially all the t- major tertiary hospitals in Australia and New Zealand that see a lot of kids uh, have got a cooperative research network. There are similar research networks in the US, so PCAN and PEM. CIC. There's a, a research network in Canada, uh, PERC uh, in the UK and Ireland. There's Periki. There's one in uh, Spain. Uh, there's one across Europe, and there's a hell of a lot of collaboration between these networks. So there are some studies that we've run that have crossed all of these networks. Wow. So what we did and. and In addition to that, there's an overarching body, paediatric emergency research networks, which is essentially got representatives from all of these local or regional research networks, and they meet once a year as a face-to-face meeting and have a few other uh, teleconferences. So, we've run a few studies through Monash that have been part of this paeds emergency research network, so global studies. So, we, we did one on critical procedures that had a hundred different hospitals participating and so on. So, with that in mind, you can go to Pern and say, well, we want to do this as a a, a Pern project. So, at the moment, our working group has people from Australia, the New Zealand, we've got people from uh, the US and Canada, we've got people from South America, we've got people from the UK and Ireland, Singapore, the Middle East, India, Africa, and we actually do have a, a global approach to this. Wow. So um, we, we
0: di- you did say we touched on uh, PREDICT and the scope and the, the, uh, the reach that the PED community have is pretty incredible. But PREDICT do a little bit more than just research? Do they have other um, goals, other aspirations for the profession?
1: Well, I think PREDICT is essentially a research collaborative. Um, it's a paediatric research and emergency department, international collaborative is what it's called and and it, it was formed to do research. Um, I think you can look at research in a narrow way, you can look at research in a, in a, in a broad way and if you, know, you do research and you don't tell anyone about it and it doesn't change practice, it doesn't really help many people and so you can use research to drive practice improvement, you can re- use research to highlight variation in care, you can use research to improve care and Predictors sort of got looks at the whole knowledge pipeline from identifying the gaps to where research is, uh, where there is a gap in knowledge through to conducting the right studies to try and address that gap. And there's quite an emphasis on knowledge translation through. Different things. So, knowledge translation is one of those wishy washy terms that you hear a lot, but essentially, you're trying to get research findings into practice. And it's done that in a few different ways. Um, PREDICT has written a bronchiolitis guideline, uh, which which applies across Australia and New Zealand. Uh, The PREDICT uh, findings from the seizure study. we're sort of launched with APLS into the new algorithm for status epilepticus in Australia and New Zealand. Spent a lot of work done on head injury and we've also done research into how to better translate knowledge from research studies into practice. Um, essentially involving lots of non-tertiary hospitals as well as tertiary hospitals and trying to work out whether you know tailored educational things and a whole package of knowledge translation works better than just giving people a guideline and hoping that they read it.
0: Um, a while ago, um, some years ago now, you put together a – um, resuscitation uh, aid memoir or uh, type of book yep he's reaching for it now he's gotten bigger <laughs> um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the um, your drive to do that how that came about and what you've seen in terms of its implementation implementation and how it's helped
1: so a few years ago, I was uh, chair of a hospital's recess committee. Um, and uh, obviously, I work in emergency departments. One morning, I came in to work and uh, walked into recess, and there was a little baby that was intubated and was pretty sick. And, you know, one thing led to another, and uh, the patient stabilized and eventually went to intensive care. But looking through the notes and chatting to the staff, uh, it was apparent that. The resuscitation had been a bit of a disaster overnight. Essentially, the baby had been brought in flat, unexpectedly rushed in from triage, put on a bed. They decided pretty early on they needed to intubate the child. Uh, They asked for some drugs. They drew up some drugs. They gave the drugs, and it was an incredibly large drug error, and the child arrested Mm -hmm. and was subsequently resuscitated. And looking at the case, reflecting on the case, um couple of things came to mind. Uh, one is that managing unexpected resuscitations is part of our job, but it's a very stressful part of our job, particularly in children because there's that uh, difficulty in calculating doses and tr- trying to work out how to dilute things and how much volume you give and all those things. And we hardly ever do it. You know, in, We've looked at the numbers here and about one in a thousand children that present to Monash Health ADs needs a critical procedure.
0: And to, and to be honest, in my experience, that's what makes me sweat are the calculations and the getting it right with the, with the dilution and all of those things.
1: Yeah, and no one's ever at their best okay. when they're really stressed and doing okay. maths when you're really stressed exactly. is really hard. Yeah. So what came out of it was a recognition that, okay, if we've got a a child that's six kilos and you need to give a dose of a drug, then you've got to work out, well, what's the milligram per kilo dose? What's the dilution that I've got? How do I dilute and draw it up? What volume do I then need to give to give the dose that's been asked for? And there's all those steps that every time there's a sick child... You know, the traditional teaching is to go to a whiteboard and scribble all this stuff down. Sometimes you don't get any warning. Sometimes the child just presented to you. And every time we go to a whiteboard and scribble stuff down, we're doing stuff that we've done the last time and the time before that and the time before that. So, we thought, well, why don't we just have a pre-calculated book? So, we developed the book and essentially it's got sections for intubation, cardiac arrest, uh, anaphylaxis, uh, asthma, seizures, and electrolyte abnormalities and other things and we sort of came up with a list based on what do you need right now uh, or what do you need in a stressful situation or what is potentially life-saving but pretty rare like the management of hyperkalemia is pretty common in the adult patient with the renal problems and you just give one ampule of everything but in a small child you don't have the uh, luxury of doing that. So. The recess committee was comprised of uh, emergency doctors, emergency nurses, intensive care doctors and nurses, anaesthetists, paediatricians, paediatric wardens, and uh, we also engaged the help of a pharmacist. and We wrote the book, and essentially what it is, it's got pre-calculated uh, weight for uh, pre-calculated drugs for each weight range. So you open up the four kilo page, and it tells you what to give, how to dilute it, and what volume to give. So, we rolled that out at Monash and we made it a paper, you know, we just printed it out on paper, spiral bound it and put it on the resource trolleys and got used and we found out pretty quickly that um, when you're drawing up stuff in an emergency, you tend to spill stuff on the book and all the paper ran, all the ink ran on the paper. So, we've ended up with a laminated book. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to speak about it at an APLS conference later that year or the next year and there was interest. So we sort of made it a little bit more uh, polished and and started uh, making it available for other hospitals to use. Uh, So that was 2014, the first one was released, and we revised it in 2018. At that point, we'd asked APLS for their endorsement and they were happy to uh, Mm -hmm. allow us to use their logo on the front cover and um, incorporate the APLS protocols in the book. And my understanding is that it's used during APLS courses and things like that. So we've got probably about 600, 700 copies sold of the most recent edition. Um,
0: is there plans for it, and you probably guess what this question is, to um, be distributed digitally? So perhaps in a in a, an app or a uh, program or even just a PDF,
1: you know? So there... Is and we're currently with our third lot of app developers over the last three years. Oh dear. Um, for various reasons, uh, it, the, the development of the app hasn't been as smooth as we'd have liked. They never are. Yep. But that's okay. So the thing is, yes, uh, the other angles that we're taking it. Um, the book we've developed works pretty well in Australia but isn't necessarily as applicable in other places. Exactly. Uh, we've had some funding from uh, ASIM's International Development Fund to develop one for India, one for South Africa, and one for South America. Right. And through the sort of the uh, colleagues I've met during various Attention research... Please, uh, adult Code Blue, Monash okay, Medical Centre, Ward 42, Nurses Station, Adult Code Blue, Monash Medical Centre... Ward 42, nurses station. So, we've had some funding to help develop uh, international versions for India and South Africa and then also in a subsequent year South America. And, And the interesting thing is that the issues you're faced with in different countries are completely different. The drug availability is different. The pathology is different. So, uh, for the Indian version of the book, uh, we're incorporating uh, various toxicology things uh, such as prazosin for scorpion stings, which give you hypertensive huh. crises. Yeah. But your area of expertise. <laughs> well, <obviously>. not necessarily. <laughs> but the, the nice thing is, is that you know we've got a book that we can send across and then we can sort of build one yeah. from the ground up with uh, local people. So, that's been a really interesting... Um, um, part of the thing is to see how it could work in other settings. Right.
0: Well, thanks for that. Look, my experience of it was, I think I um, raised my hands to the sky and uh, said hallelujah when I when it first came out and when I when I became aware of it and started um, looking at it and. It has. It took away that sweatiness. That as I think most emergency doctors and emergency nurses, at any point of their kind of experience or, or their competency career, um, get to a point where the technical skills uh, you you can manage most things with 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 ease. However, it's always those cognitive things that tend to be really challenging, and one of them, for me in particular, is maths. and And this thing just made it made it so much better. Is it okay if we talk just for the last couple of questions about your um, uh, your experience of of emergency care? So, I think. W- Every, everybody I speak to over the last 24 years in emergency, they have a story or a person or a shift that happened that kind of informed the way they practiced from there on in or uh, really stuck with them. Um, is there anything from your career as a clinician that's really sort of brought to your current practice and your style, I guess, of practice that's, that's informed that?
1: It's an interesting question and I think you end up where you are through sometimes a large transformative experience and sometimes lots of incremental bits. Um, you know, in final year high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. I <laughs> didn't know what yeah. uni course I was going to do. I didn't know anything. And I did a week of work experience at Box Hill Hospital Emergency Department in 1993. <laughs> so, emergency medicine was quite different back then. Um but the director took high school students and, and let them loose on, for a week. So I spent a week there and I hung around um, with a bunch of people who are now quite prominent emergency physicians in various places, but they were doing, you know, the, the junior doctor who I spent a day with, at one point he was doing a 14-hour shift, so starting at 8 in the morning and finishing at 10 at night. And I thought, I'll do that. That was really <laughs> interesting. But, you know, I – I just loved it. I spent probably fifty hours there that week. I thought this is awesome, and I really enjoyed emergency at that point. Um, then through medical school, so at, at then you know I did medical school, and obviously you know during your training you spend a bit of time around different places. And I sort of adopted or was adopted by Daniel Emergency Department as a fourth year fifth year medical student final year medical student so I spent an awful lot of time there. Mm-hmm. Um, I hung around I got to know a lot of the registrar's and consultants and I spent lots of late evenings into the early morning hanging around waiting for you know the major trauma to come in or you know the exciting things to come in or look at resuscitations and you know uh, that was, That sort of confirmed my interest in emergency medicine and although growing up in that, there were lots of, you know, wonderful registrars who were happy to have someone hang around and chat to who are now, a lot of them are now consultant colleagues Um, and, you know, role modelling teaching, role modelling being supportive, um, it was good. There were some very good clinically, some excellent clinicians, there were some uh, excellent teachers uh, there were some that were both, there were some that were neither, and that's okay. Uh, and, and again, uh, developing uh, a close relationship with lots of the nursing staff, again, very supportive, very happy for, you know, the medical student that keeps hanging around to have a go at putting that drip in or send off the bloods or get into the blood bank and do this. And, you know, I'm sure probably some of it was helpful, uh, some of it probably wasn't, but just being involved and being part of it uh, was was really good. Um when I finished medical school, I did my next two years up in Queensland. My then girlfriend, now wife, uh, was studying up there. So we'd done one year of long distance sort of relationship and then went up there for two years. And so walking into a completely new hospital environment, didn't know anybody. Uh, there was one of the general medical physicians who was very approachable. You could call him up at 11.30 at night or 2 in the morning And he'd always take the phone call, always be polite and always give good advice. And that was just amazing. Um, So the three A's, approachable, available and affable, yeah? Yes, true. Uh, And in the days before iPhones and everything at your fingertips, he had this little book with everything (laughs) possibly written down it, and he had all these little bits of advice and, you know, doses of this or phone numbers for that or how to sort this out. It was just amazing and such a nice guy. Um, And again emergency physicians I've worked with, uh, both in uh, Queensland and in uh, Victoria. There are probably too many to name, uh, but again, recurring themes of being approachable, uh, taking an interest, being happy to give advice and support, um, and being good at your job. But remembering that You know, emergency medicine, as as you've alluded to, you sort of start by not knowing anything, not knowing what to do, and not knowing how it's done, to then getting to the point of knowing what could be done, but maybe not being sure how to do it.
0: So you've got pattern recognition yeah. at this point, yep.
1: And then you go on to being relatively competent, you know, as a senior registrar, you sort of can do stuff and you know what needs to be done and you can supervise a bit. And then as you become a consultant, you've got to learn to let other people do it mm. but then be able to step in exactly. when you, when you yeah. can't do it. I, I have to take a slight disagreement with your point that, you know, as, as you become more experienced, the technical stuff gets easier and easier. I still think putting drips in little kids I can make look really difficult. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I
0: get. I take your point. Yeah, But yes so I've got one last question and this isn't a a parenthetical thought it's actually probably one of the things that I wanted to talk to or I want to talk to most of the emergency care world about Um, and and it's a a bit of a hypothetical if you were to um, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and the state of emergency care in um, Australasia or your experience in Australia was perfect, what, what what would that look like? Big I, question, I, I know, I'm sorry.
1: No, no, I think it's an excellent question, but I think one of the premises, one, one of the major premise of emergency medicine is that there's imperfection. Yeah. No one starts their day planning to turn up to emergency departments. No. Uh, so I think recognising that we do need to be available to treat people when they need it uh, is the most important thing. A lot of pressure is put on emergency departments because we are a bit of a safety valve for the rest of the hospital and a bit of a safety net for everyone in the community. Um, But that's our job. And I think saying that, you know, so that the the perfect school is the one with no students, the perfect hospital is the one with no patients, that's not what I want. You know, one of the fun things about emergency medicine is the – Changing of of directions, change of attention, uh, multitasking that comes with having a reasonable patient load and a need to prioritise things. If we had patients by appointment, that wouldn't be perfect in my mind. So I I think, you know, bed access is nice to have, Mm -hmm. and that may or may not happen. You know, in my lifetime, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. Um, having appropriate community supports will reduce some things, but not others. Um, and a lot of what emergency medicine is is, you know, we are important, as is everything else in the health system, but we're only one part of the health system. So we're not going to be perfect until the rest of the place is mm-hmm. perfect. So you can have a perfect emergency department, but if you've got no beds upstairs. It's not a perfect emergency department. You can have a perfect emergency department if you don't have GPs and primary healthcare, everyone will come to the emergency department. So I think in my mind, perfection is more around uh, having staff, having opportunities to learn having opportunities to look after patients and provide meaningful and useful care. I don't think we should be doing stuff that doesn't add value to the patient. I don't think we should be as duplicative as what we are at the moment. So at the moment, you turn up to triage. Mm -hmm. You spend five minutes talking to someone who will then send you inside and you'll spend five minutes telling the other person the same thing you spoke to the first person. And then you'll see the doctor who will speak to you again. So there's a lot of repetition. And I think... We do things that are easy for us, but maybe not so easy for the patients. And in my mind, a perfect emergency department puts the patients ahead of the staff. But you know,
0: often hear it described as you know, if you're sitting on an aeroplane, um, and putting that the that. You as the airline passenger, as a metaphorical patient, um, and you look out the window and you see that there's, um, you know, a couple of bolts loose on the wing or whatever it might be. Uh, even though you're not part of that uh, crew, that airline crew, you're got a you got a lot of skin in the game at this point, and you probably should be invited to tell the team who are flying the plane about some of the problems or something that's going wrong. Um, I, I always think of that in terms of the patient and you know, if they see something that's not going right or they see um, somebody giving them a medication without checking their name band or they're doing something that they've noticed other people doing before, do, do you think there's any way that we can improve that invitation for the patient to be at the center of what we do?
1: I think it's just acknowledging that patients are just as much a part of the care as the the doctors and the nurses, and realizing that they know some stuff about what's going on with them or they want to know most of the time there are occasional situations where they're not so keen to know but most of the time they want to be engaged involved in the care and giving them the opportunity to do that the other thing that just occurred to me around the perfect emergency department um, is actually knowing with whether what you do does any good so at the moment when we look after a patient they go to the ward and that's it or they go home and that's it. So finding a little bit more out about the outcomes of the patients that we've seen. So and being able to compare and benchmark. So, you know, why would hypothetically hospital A have half as many Children going to the ward with asthma as hospital B. Are they sicker, or is hospital A doing something better than hospital B? You know, what's the survival of STEMIs in hospital A, B, and C? And mm. is there a difference? Mm. And so, mm. being able to compare the way we do things and how we do things, and look at not only that, but a lot of a lot of emergency medicine care is about doing stuff now, but we don't see what happens down the track and the more we find out about what happens to the patient, you know, the, the standard... Uh, response to someone coming up to you and say, do you remember the patient you saw last week? is not usually a positive one. You're thinking, oh, what have I done wrong or what happened? But we don't routinely find out what happened to the patient that we saw last week. And I I think that's a a big gap. And clearly some people go into emergency medicine because they don't want that continuity of care. But I think even then you still want to know whether your outcomes are any good. You want to know whether you're doing a good job. And I think there's a big gap. Yeah.
0: Stand down. Code yellow. Monash Medical
1: Centre and the Monash Children's Hospital, stand down, code yellow, Monash Medical Centre
0: and a bit the Monash not do, Hospital. Well, look, um, Simon, I think that's actually a perfect way to finish off um, in terms of we can all stand down. Um, thanks so much for your time. Um, I. Th- I really do think I've got an awful lot more to talk to you about um, in terms of the state of emergency care um, and perhaps we can get you back at another time and have a chat about some broader reaching questions. Always happy to chat. Good on you. Thanks. Thanks for Bye. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life.